All right, uh, welcome to the May ICEP Connect. Uh, today, we are gonna be talking about meaningful early years. Um, we have some scholars from, as usual, across the globe. Um, so we're gonna turn it over first to Finland, uh, which is the host of the 2024 ICEP conference, May 13th to the 17th. Plug right there for Aria. Um, so we have some uh, presenters and I'm gonna move it over to Aria Saxlahti for from the University of Uvascular to start us off. Yes, thank you, Risto. And I am Arya Saxlahti, one of the uh, ISF board members and also chairing with Christy ISF Early Year Special Interest Group. And uh, this is our logo that you are seeing there on the screen. And uh, in case, Christy, you take another uh, PowerPoint slide. So we would like to share you the information that uh, in ISF family, we have two different uh, uh, special interest groups. So early years is one and the other is for teaching games for understanding. And these six groups are the group of people within ISF family who are interested in similar aspects. And our seek is to create an active network of researchers and academics with an interest in issues relating to early childhood education, and we like to say early years because it's more uh, convenient or shorter way. And also physical activity and health, physical education and physical development. So all these topics are very uh, near heart of us. And our vision is for researchers, scholars, practitioners to come together within the SIC with a focus on sharing findings, generating collaborative opportunities for research together to allow for international comparisons as well as collaborations. And uh, our aim is to do uh, research together and the specific areas that our SIG is interested are teaching physical education, early years physical activity, physical development, health and well-being children's development through play and children's growth and development. And because we want to inspire our colleagues and our network to do research together and uh, based on our interest area. So we were, Christy and I, we were sharing uh, culturing, cultures, editors in uh, Journal of Early Childhood Education Research and invited our network to offer um, articles uh, from their topic. And today we have three interesting presenters. And our presenters today, that and these presenters are pre, uh, based on these articles that are published in this journal. Special issue. So first we hear Nathan Hall, who comes from Brock University, Canada, and his topic is Movement for Life, a Physical Literacy Resource. And after Nathan, we, we will hear Dan Jones from Teesside University, UK, and the topic Physical Development and Physical Activity. And third will be Jack Smith, the Coast School, from Saudi Arabia with a meaningful physical education. And now Christy, you can stop sharing. 
So uh, each of these speakers have 10 minute presentation and we really encourage you to write a comment, uh, questions, inspired uh, thoughts to, to their chat. And uh, after and after presentation, we have some uh, look what, what there is and have discussion. So each presenter, please respect approximately 10 minute timeline. So then we have time to hear everyone and also have uh, inspiring discussion together. So please, uh, Nathan, first screen is yours. Okay, let me just make sure I can get this up. Are we seeing it? Yes. Perfect. Okay, well, uh, good morning from uh, Niagara Falls, Canada. Uh, thank you first to Christy and Arya for uh, inviting me to be part of the, the special issue in the journal and, uh, and to ISEP to uh, share our work today. Um, my colleague, Dr. Melanie Gregg from the University of Winnipeg uh, did this work with, with me over the last few years. And uh, our project was called the Movement for Life, a Physical Literacy Resource for Early Childhood Caregivers. Um, there we go. I think the best place for me to start is just to quickly um, give a definition of what we were defining as a physically literate person when we started this work. Uh, in Canada, Physical and Health Education Canada defines physically literate individuals are those who move with competence and confidence in a wide variety of physical activities in multiple environments that benefit the healthy development of the whole person. And uh, we really focus on the whole idea of competence, confidence, and motivation in the area of physical literacy here in Canada. And when it comes to the early years, there's lots of benefits to developing physical literacy right from those early ages um, in the physical, social, and mental health outcome areas. Um, but what we do know is that uh, children in the early years are less likely to engage in sedentary behavior if they are physically literate, and they're more likely to then be physically active and remain so in the future if they develop physical literacy um, in those early years. What we were interested in when we first started this was focusing on early childhood educators. And what we found out when we did uh, a little bit of uh, literature review was that ECEs can play uh, a critical role in offering opportunities for children to be physically active and develop physical literacy, but they may not place importance on movement skills in young children because there's this tendency uh, to focus on things like language skills or numeracy, social and emotional skill development um, as cited by Clark 2014 and Whitehead 2010. And we also found that ECEs have been uh, known to overestimate the amount of physical activity that young children engage in while they are under the ECE's care, so at a daycare center per se. So with this understanding, we were actually contacted uh, by the city of Winnipeg. At this time, I was working at the University of Winnipeg. And the city of Winnipeg contacted us at the university and said, we would like to come up with some kind of program that could help address these issues of, of early childhood educators and caregivers not really being well informed on physical literacy and providing opportunities for physical literacy. And they contacted us at the University of Winnipeg and said, do you think we could work together to create some kind of 
program or resource to help with this. We said, sir, this is a great idea. We love it. Um, obviously, they had some funding, which was nice as well. And uh, another organization run by Doctors in Manitoba, the provincial organization, um, they have this group called Fit Kids Healthy Kids, which they fund, which also decided to come in and support this project. And in the end, we created a program called Movement for Life, which was intended to educate caregivers on the benefits of developing physical literacy in the early years. The specific research questions that we had for our initial study, which is shared in the journal, uh, and which I'm talking about today, was does providing this physical literacy education program, so our Movement for Life program, to early childhood educators and care center directors translate to perceived changes in the environment at the daycare center regarding physical literacy opportunities and support being provided at the early childhood care centers? And does the delivery of this program um, translate to reported changes also in behaviors and values around the center among both the staff and the kids in relation to physical literacy development in the early childhood care setting? So our study methods, uh, we had nine urban daycare centers in the city of Winnipeg in Canada. Um, six daycare center directors participated and 84 uh, ECEs with a mean years of experience of 11.54. Uh, the instruments that we used were the physical activity self-assessment for childcare by Ward et al. 2014, uh, the physical literacy environmental assessment or the PLEA created by Caldwell and colleagues in 2020. And then we also created a survey just for this study regarding personal behaviors for providing physical literacy development opportunities and perceived barriers to developing physical literacy opportunities. The procedures as far as the program went was initially any daycare center that was interested registered with our partner Fit Kids Healthy Kids to partake in the program, so the Movement for Life program. And once a daycare center had agreed to participate in the program, we then uh, contacted them uh, through the city of Winnipeg to ask if they'd be willing to participate in the research side of things. Uh, at that point, if they agreed, we provided questionnaires in person to both the daycare center directors and any ECEs who wanted to participate. And we provided a three-hour knowledge-based workshop about promoting physical literacy and how, uh, what it is, how to do so, effective strategies for it in the early childcare setting. Uh, after that, there was eight weeks of programming with Fit Kids Healthy Kids where they came in once a week and they brought in gear um, and they led activities so that the ECEs could A, see some of these activities, the type of activities that would promote physical literacy development being done, um, but they could help out, they could engage, they got some training out of doing this. And then following the eight-week program, we went back and, uh, and re-administered the questionnaires that we did the first time. Um, and uh, and one additional questionnaire that that we included at the end just for a post test uh, our results that we found uh, with regards to changes to the care center environment environment were that the overall scores on the physical literacy environmental assessment significantly improved pre post so they went from a 12.2 out of 20 to a 13.6, which was a significant finding. So the overall physical literacy environment seemed to improve at these daycare centers having provided this education. Uh, the only subcategory, so there were uh, uh, four, five subcategories, four subcategories, sorry, of the plea uh, that did not have significant improvements was the programming subcategory. 
And we likely felt that this was because it was already high in the first place. And in Manitoba, where we were doing this research, there are kind of requirements in place for each daycare center to have programming related to physical activity. So we kind of figured that that was the reason why we didn't see a significant improvement, but there still was an improvement from 4.1 to 4.33. With respect to behavior related results, we found that there were changes in confidence. So the ECEs reported significantly increased confidence in providing physical literacy opportunities to the children. Uh, this was on a five point scale from before the program, they were at a 3.69 and after the program, it was a 3.94. And, and so we, we could see that they were feeling more confident in providing these opportunities, um, engaging with the, the children in their care with regards to these physical literacy opportunities. Um, we also saw a significant decrease in their reports with regards to um, how difficult it was to provide physical literacy opportunities. So after they had done this program, they found it easier to provide these types of opportunities in their centers, which again, this positive finding, we're like, yes, the program seems to be having the effect that we wished. So um, really good on that side of things. We also uh, added a few post-program questions. One was to do with uh, the overall participation. So 81.4% of the ECEs reported that the Movement for Life program prompted them or the center that they worked at to increase the frequency of activities that they provided uh, that were related to physical literacy development. 88.2% of the ECEs reported that participation in the Movement for Life program helped increase the number and variety of the activities being provided at their daycare centers. And 73% of the ECEs indicated that uh, there were changes in the children's physical activity patterns at the centers following this program. So again, lots of positive benefits that they're suggesting came from the program that that they could actually see these things occurring in their centers from the beginning to the end of uh, engaging in the movement for life program uh, our final trends that we found related to some of the barriers so although we did see these improvements over the course of the program participants suggested that there were still some common barriers that they were facing even afterwards when it came to delivering physical literacy type activities the most common discussed had to do with time, weather, it is Winnipeg, it is cold a lot of the year, they can't always go outside, um, and available space or access to space. All of these would be considered environmental barriers, um, and there are ways to get around them, but it's, it was interesting for sure to hear that these barriers, even after doing this program, yes, they still existed. This doesn't negate those barriers from existing. There's still something that they battle with to provide these activities. Um, and some of the centers, the space was definitely a, a, an issue and a premium. We also had some mention of lack of motivation among certain children to do these physically liter physical literacy focused activities as a barrier and just changing traditional mindsets of keeping kids sedentary because it's safer was a barrier that they also reported. So that, you know, this getting over this idea of, but it's easier if the kids aren't moving and they're, they're sitting and we have them in one place as opposed to getting them up and moving around and developing physical literacy, changing that mindset of, you know, this, this safety and this benefit of not having kids move was another barrier that they cited. So our implications from this were that uh, hopefully education programs like this, uh, the Movement for Life program, uh, will continue to, to occur around the world because they do seem to increase confidence and competence in providing physical literacy opportunities in young children. 
Um, hopefully it'll lead to some policy changes, at least here in, in Canada and particularly Winnipeg and Manitoba with regards to amount of time outdoors and, and the activities offered. And um, it identifies and subsequently addresses uh, some of the barriers. Uh, now that we know that these barriers exist, hopefully we can take some steps to try to alleviate them. And our next steps are to seek out some private sector support to enhance the reach of the Movement for Life program and start offering it to other childhood caregivers. So parents, grandparents, um, those types of individuals. So that is it, a little over story, but uh, thank you for listening. Still got in under 12 minutes, Christy. So thank you, Nathan. So Christy, I think that uh, would you like to <laughs> make a question? <laughs> Um, what I was going to suggest, if we do all the presenters first, Aria, and then we come to questions for everybody, then there might be similar connections that all the authors might be able to answer. Perfect suggestion. So, uh, to yes. Dan? Yeah, please, Dan. Dan. No problem. So I'll just share mine. Hi, everyone. Uh, I am Dan Jones. I'm from Teesside University in the UK. Can you see my screen? Yes, thumbs up. Excellent. That's always promising. Okay, yeah. Uh, thanks very much to Aya and Christy for inviting me today. Um, as I say, I'm Dan Jones from uh, Teesside University. I'm going to be presenting a study from my PhD, which looked at physical activity, motor skills, and school readiness and the association between those in early years. Um, but I'm going to focus on the physical activity side of, of um, the study today and look at how the physical activity varies across uh, season, day, uh, and hourly variation, and also according to anthropometric and demographic factors. So, obviously, everybody in here knows the benefits of physical activity, and these sort of uh, images here demonstrate that and, and, and illustrate the, the numerous benefits of being physically active. But I think this is the reason why within this um, special interest group and similar to what Christy and I were saying, and Nate touched upon the importance of focusing on early years is perhaps best demonstrated by this graph um, that shows that the, the brain's ability to change in response to experiences at its highest point within these early years um, and the amount of effort required to make changes to behaviours increases as, as we get older, which I'm sure probably everybody in here would, would agree with. But that really highlights the importance of setting, a, setting those important um those healthy behaviors within early years so that they can be established and continued uh into later life so that's a sort of rationale between behind focusing on physical activity so uh on early years sorry so what i did was i went to schools in england um over one academic year and worked with reception children for those people who aren't from england reception is um the sort of academic year between the ages of four and five that precedes going into formal schooling so it's a bit more the children don't get as many structured lessons a bit more free to um to be physically active which might explain some of the results we had so the physical acti physical activity was measured using uh a gt1m accelerometer which is this thing right here worn around the children's uh waist on the right hip we used a uh, 15 second epochs using these cut points um to define what um, constitute what level of physical activity. So we looked at sedentary behavior, moderate to vigorous physical activity and all different sorts of intensities. Um, Non-wear time was defined as 20 minutes of consecutive zero. So 
we assumed they'd taken off at that point. And to be included in the analysis, they had to wear the um, the XRM for a minimum of eight days on three days. Um, and children who didn't meet that criteria were excluded from the analysis. So the results were we recruited 329 children from 26 primary schools. Um, of those, 268 met the accelerometer wear time criteria, um, but three seemed to be um, outliers, so they were excluded. I think there'd been some sort of um, malfunction in the accelerometer that caused them to have either extremely high, uh, to have extremely high levels of physical activity. Therefore, a sample of 265 participants were included. Um, the average number of days they were one for was 5.3, uh, and on average for 10.6 hours over the course of those days. 172 of them wore the accelerometers on a week, on at least one weekend day. So they, that allowed us to use that subset of um, children to analyze their weekend physical activity data as well. And of the participants included, 51.3% of them were boys. So it's a, quite an even split between boys and girls. So this table um, shows you the um, percent of time spent in physical in each intensity of physical activity, but also the total amount of physical activity and the differences between gender. So you can see, as is consistent in the literature, that there's significant difference between uh, boys and girls for the amount of physical activity that they engage in. We found that um, boys engage in significantly more MVPA up than uh, than girls. But one of the, the the interesting findings of this is that the average amount of MV, moderate to vigorous physical activity uh, that was per day was ninety nine point six minutes. So that's significantly higher than what we would than the um, physical activity guidelines in the UK, which is sixty minutes per day, but also in line uh, higher than most previously documented um, research studies. So they were a very physically active group. Um, if we move on to the associations between the demographic and anthropometric factors, so um, what characteristics of the children were associated with being physically active, we can see that probably socioeconomic status was um, associated with all sorts of different activity intensities. So it was negatively associated with sedentary behaviour. So children who were from more affluent areas were less sedentary, but children who were um, from more affluent areas also engage in more moderate to vigorous physical activity. Vigorous physical activity, which is sort of the most intense type of physical activity, was an interesting one. Um, older children, um, children from more affluent areas and children with a lower BMIZ engaged in uh, more vigorous physical activity. The other thing that we looked at was seasonal variations in physical activity. Uh, and it's, it should point out that this study was sort of cross-sectional, so each child was just measured over eight days. Um, so that accounts for the different in, differences in sample sizes between each of the uh, seasons. So there's sort of limited um, uh, conclusions we can draw from this. But what, one of the things we did find is that um, autumn was the most sedentary month, um, which was we couldn't really understand why, but it might be something to do with the fact that uh, that's the time that children tend to transition into different academic years. So it might be a settling in period where they don't do as much physical activity. That was also borne out in the uh, results from MVPA, which was consistent um, across spring, summer and winter, but significantly lower in autumn as well. 
we then moved on to look at the average activity on weekdays and weekends. So as you can see, there was only 172 children who were um, who engaged in at least one day of physical activity on a weekend. And you can see here that there's some significant differences between uh, the amount of sedentary behaviour on a weekday compared to a weekend. So children were significantly more sedentary uh, during the weekdays compared to a weekend. But they, uh, there was no difference between the amount of MVPA children did uh, between weekdays and weekends. But on a weekend, they were their total physical activity was much higher, and that's measured using the um, counts per minute on the accelerometer. So there's significant differences there between weekday and weekend activity, which we would probably expect. We then went further and, and sort of segregated the times between uh, before school, during school and after school. And we found that children um, engaged in significantly more MVPA after school compared to um, before or during school. But they also engaged in more sedentary behaviour before school compared to during and after school and the majority of their time in school was spent in uh, light physical activity. Uh, the other thing we also found was that after school children also engage in significantly more total physical activity compared to before and during school. We then did a sort of analysis where we looked at um, how much physical activity they did at each hour of the day during uh, the time they were at school. So you can see um, that at 12 o'clock, children are most, uh, are engaging in the most MVPA. Uh, that's the most MVPA that children do is at 12 o'clock during the school day. So that correlates generally with lunchtime and also with the time in which they're least sedentary. But other interesting things to consider are that uh, MVPA spikes at eight o'clock or between eight and nine, and between two and three, which is sort of potentially the result of active travel, so traveling to and from school. Um, so they might be areas to target uh, for future inter interventions. But when we look at the sedentary behavior, we can see that sedentary behavior is highest when they first enter school. So it might be that if we're thinking about interventions such as physically active learning, that within the time that they first arrive at school, could they be doing some physical activity um, sort of uh, learning lessons rather than just sat and not moving. So the conclusions from the study were that 97.4% of children in uh, the age group met the physical activity guidelines, so that's much higher than, um, than we expected, and they were significantly higher than the, uh, the government recommendations. Children engage in less sedentary behaviour and more MVPA than documented in previous studies. Differences existed um, according to season, so they were least active and more sedentary in autumn, whereas MVPA was consistent across spring, summer and winter. They were significantly more sedentary during week, weekdays and engaged in more TPA on a weekend, so total physical activity. Lunchtime and school commutes appear to be important for children to engage in MVPA on school days. The majority of children's school days was actually spent in sedentary behaviour and light physical activity. As previously documented in other studies, boys were more active than girls and were more likely to comp comply with the gui guidelines. And children from more affluent areas engaged in significantly less sedentary behaviour and more physical activity than children from less affluent areas. So the, the sort of take-home messages from this are our ch children, there's areas that we could highlight to improve physical activity or increase physical activity. But in this sample, they were already really quite significantly active. So we could um, target 
uh, our future funding at interventions that focus on things like motor skills, which could promote physical activity in later life, or other areas such as school readiness, which was um, one of the things I was looking at in my PhD. Uh, I've got to 10 minutes, but the, the, the last thing I want to quickly mention is that there's a special issue that I'm um, editing in children, which is looking at movement behaviours and motor skills in early children. And there's a QR code there, which I'm sure will um, be put up on the um, on the recording that if people want to access, we cannot, we're able to offer some uh, papers, free publications. So if anyone does have uh, some publications that they're looking for a home for, that related to movement skills in early years, then please consider. And I'd be happy to talk to anyone about that. So, sorry, I'm under, I am under 12 though, Christy. So thanks very much, everyone. Cheers. I'll stop sharing. Thank you, Dan. And there is already some questions in the chat okay. to you, but we go on with Jack Smith. So please, Jack, you can share your screen to us. Okay, um, whoops, that's the wrong one. Hold on just a second. Okay, sorry about that. And thank you everybody for uh, your presentations and for inviting me along as well. Uh, so the, the project that I worked on that was documented in JECER um, was what is important and the subtitle is how one early childhood teacher prioritized meaningful experiences for children in physical education. I worked on it with uh, Tim Fletcher, Fletcher, Deirdre Nikroinen, and Adam Carter. Tim and Deirdre are from uh, the Learning About Meaningful PE group, and Adam Carter was a graduate student in at Brock University in Canada. And uh, we wanted to do kind of a case study about um, prioritizing personal relevance in early years PE. So we wanted to make uh, personal relevance the driver for meaningful PE ex experiences in early years PE. And this was a single exploratory qualitative, qualitative case study of K-1 PE. So that's uh, three to four-year-old children in the Cal school. And the Cal school is where I work and live in Saudi Arabia. Um, it's a community school, meaning that everybody in the compound here, uh, all the children go to the school. And it's about uh, 3,000 children through the whole school. In my kindergarten, there's about 750 students. And then uh, the students that I studied were numbered about 175, and they come from all over the world, uh, uh, Americans, Saudis, Chinese, and uh, about 68 other nationalities are present in our school. So um, the, the way we collected data in this, in this way was that I did uh, personal reflections, during my lessons, after my lessons, 
Um, the, the study was influenced by my approach and my philosophy. And uh, we also used the mosaic approach for interviewing students to gather their reflections. And uh, the timeline of the study or the, the case study was from January to May. Back in 2020, actually, uh, I believe we finished our last student interview uh, the day before my school closed for something called the COVID-19 pandemic. So we were extremely lucky to finish up right before we went into hibernation. Uh, in January, um, I met with Tim and Deirdre to talk about my approach and how it fits into the meaningful PE framework because there's not a lot of uh, data on early years or early childhood education and PE for the meaningful PE movement. It's mostly uh, based in elementary and secondary school, um, but they were interested in seeing, you know, what's possible with the early years. So we we started to talk about how we would uh, approach our project what methodology we'd use. And uh, I also linked up with Adam and Adam became, um, I kind of became a, uh, a source for Adam in his graduate studies. Then throughout January and February, we, uh, we implemented the, the unit, the project. We had in-class play, we were researching, recording, doing documentation. Uh, in March, we, uh, you know, gathered student reflection data. I had uh, my pedagogical coach, Andy Vasily, who was visiting quite often, the kids knew him, and he was uh, gathering student reflection data in the form of interviews, um, using pictures. So like the mosaic approach offered us many different ways to gather the data because as we know, <laughs> uh, reflections from three to four year olds can be somewhat unreliable or they can be hard to elicit and uh, it allowed the students to express themselves in a, in a myriad of different ways so they could draw pictures they could circle pictures they could uh, they could talk they could uh, you know share in any way that was possible for them or more most comfortable for them and we did a lot of the documentation on the app seesaw also uh, so in April, I found myself with quite a lot of time on my hands. So that's when we did a lot of, I did a lot of the synthesizing and the analyzing of the findings. I did a comprehensive write-up um, in which I just uh, outlined everything that I did and the effects that it had on the students and uh, the students' words. And then in May, I kind of, uh, I used all that to create a presentation that was presented to the Charged Up PE conference um, online. And since then, Adam and Deirdre and Tim and I, we were, we were working on the paper and it was finally published in February this year. So one thing, I, there, was a, there was a lot that was in the paper and I can't, because of time, go into all of it, but I do want to highlight uh, one particular aspect of my teaching that I think is a catalyst for meaningful, personally relevant experiences in early years PE, and that is using storytelling as the medium. And why do I, why did I choose storytelling? It's because I was focusing on personal relevance as a driver. 
uh, in meaningful PE. There's many different um, strands of meaningful PE, including motor competence, challenge, social interaction, fun, delight. But I was focusing in on personally personal relevance because uh, I was using my experience to tell me that storytelling is the language of children, right? So for physical education teachers looking to facilitate personally relevant learning experiences, it's important to help students draw connections between what they are currently learning and how it can be used in their daily lives. So I intuited that uh, stories are such an integral part of children's lives and learning that uh, it would make a great connection for PE to in order to uh, be relevant for them to elicit engagement and to create an environment where we can where children can access uh, really relevant meaningful experiences in PE and hopefully create a, a foundation for lifelong movements. Um, so there's a few different aspects of storytelling that fit into meaningful PE and I think just good teaching, right? So in storytelling, we can incorporate goal setting. Uh, this could be as part of the story, you know, what will happen in the story. Uh, we can also re incorporate reflection in storytelling by looking back at what happened, how the students encountered the story and uh, whether they were <laughs> successful or not in the story, right? Uh, we can also incorporate student choice and voice in storytelling in PE. Uh, children can choose their roles, they can choose which part of the story they would like to go to, and they can voice their preferences, right? They can say what they liked about it, what they don't like about it. They can have a voice in the creation of the story. There's a lot of chance for students to have their voice heard when we are implementing storytelling as a meaningful PE driver. Um, so we'll just go through one of those or each of those a little bit more in depth. Um, so when emphasizing personal relevance via storytelling, the students and teachers can embed goals in the narrative that may increase motivation. Uh, and also we needed to find out what was personally relevant to the students in the stories. So we uh, we talk about it in the paper. We didn't use uh, relevant as a word for uh, our students. We changed it to important for them. And there was a book that uh, really helped us get uh, get at the meaning of importance and what is important to students. Um, so you can see here uh, on the app seesaw the the child the child has uh, circled this mountain it was a, an environmental design feature in one of our stories and he said that that was one of his most meaningful places his most important place and he wanted to uh play on it through all the years so it's one where a mountain where the children go up they go down practicing different types of roles and building strength and power uh so the students were often asked to go to the most important place in the story for them, the most important area for them. And that is one way that we we um, assessed how they were, their comprehension and uh, whether they were, you know, be, their, their uh, experiences were meaningful for them. And the, at, at, at the time they made uh, that as their goal at the beginning. So our goal was to go to our most meaningful place to, uh, 
to increase our aptitude there and whatnot. Um, so reflection is also a really important part of constructivist teaching, meaningful PE. Um, and in this unit, we called it the, the Tales from the Magic Soup Pot. And you can see the soup pot there. Uh, I just had this idea spurred on by the story uh, Stone Soup. And this version I know is by Marsha Brown. It's one I liked uh, when I was a child as well. And in the story, the, uh, the three hungry soldiers kind of trick uh, a group of villagers into sharing their food by telling them they're going to make stone soup. So in our uh, PE class, we read that story, we acted it out, and we recreated this soup pot that you can see there. And inside the soup pot, we collected all of the title pages from the stories that represented different movement concepts. And we collected them there because we wanted to leave traces of learning for the students to be able to look back upon and reflect. Traces of learning is kind of a Reggio Emilia concept of <clears throat> you know, leaving children's work, traces of the children's work around so they can interact with it again. They can use it as a resource. They can reflect back on it. And uh, when we reviewed different story points as well, it provided opportunities for reflection. And this was... Uh, kind of rooted in symbolism, you know? So the symbolism of each uh, aspect of the story, the children were able to share more about that because that's their, their language, right? Symbolic learning. Uh, also student choice. Uh, we combine inventive and environmental design with stories to provide choice in where and how students participated and students, uh, we won't talk about that. We didn't do this in this unit, but you could make students choose which stories they wish to enact, or students can uh, create their own stories or you know, give their voice, which we'll talk about on the next slide. Um, the, the stories also allowed our students to socialize, negotiate, and cooperate in developmentally appropriate ways. Uh, sometimes we had the students choose which stories, you can see them kind of voting with their feet there, which stories were most important to them, which ones they wanted to revisit, and they kind of had to, you know, it was an introduction to democratic society for them. And we had some some big fights there, but we got through them <laughs> nonviolently, and uh, it was a really good experience for the students. So um, that's it for me there, and uh, I think I'm just under 12 minutes as well. So I'll stop sharing as well. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. And now there are plenty of uh, questions to inspire discussion. So Christy, please, you can carry on the discussion session. Thank you so much. Um, we're gonna head back to Nate first, if that's all right, um, just to make sure that you're still there. Um, my our first question that came in the chat was all about um you talked about this being when you were in winnipeg winnipeg um now you're in brock um how have you taken movement for life with you and how has that been your first stage of dissemination because in your talk you talk about it going to a wider area and wanting more training what have you done by moving universities as a first stage 
Yeah, it's a good question. The because the program was created for the city of Winnipeg, like they basically hired us to create it. It's technically their program. Um, but the nice thing is they've been quite willing to to share. And so as of right now, I'm working with the District of Niagara to try to prototype slight changes, not really many, um, but uh, to, to roll it out to some of the daycare centers here. The other thing is early childhood in Manitoba is up to basically five years old because they don't start school until the age of five in, in Winnipeg, whereas in Ontario, they actually start public school at the age of four. And so we were thinking of trying to roll it out in the junior kindergartens, which is age four to five, uh, across the Niagara District School Board to see how it's received in the junior kindergarten classrooms and among the JK teachers, which would be interesting because they have a slightly different training. One of the questions in the chat was about the ECE training, and um, that's from province to province. And to be honest, they receive, it doesn't matter which province you go to, they receive very, very little training related to physical literacy, physical education, anything on the physical side, very, very minimal education for ECEs, unfortunately, at this point in, in Canada. Um, we had one more question for you as well, please, Nate. So um, in the chat, there is the question about, um, did you ask about their own self-perceptions of how did they move? And are you able to give us an example of what the Movement for Life program actually did? Like, have you got an activity? So a two-part there. Did you ask about themselves? And can you give us a, a treat of an activity that you did with the Movement for Life program? Yeah, uh, as far as asking about themselves, we didn't uh, inquire with regards to self-perceptions of their bodies. But we did get one of the questions to do with the barriers, the post questions, uh, which were all qualitative. We did get several individuals who suggested one of the barriers to them was kind of their own self-perception or their view of themselves as movers leading these types of activities. They felt that it, it wasn't either comfortable or that they had self-doubt in their ability to do so even after the program and getting the education because they themselves didn't feel like they were active or they were, as, as we've used in here, the term movers. I like that term. I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, so, so we did see that in the qualitative results, but we actually, no, we don't have any um, stats on that or anything. We didn't specifically go out to find that information, but it, it came up in the qualitative discussions. Uh, as far as an example of some of the uh, the activities that we did when we went out there, uh, it's hard to like walk through an activity. Uh, they were both indoor and outdoor spaces. And typically, like we tried to focus on things like um, balance. We, we really used like a movement ed kind of background for a lot of the the uh, the activities that we did. So we tried to focus on on moving through space, uh, lots to do with balance and um, just basic manipulative skills with different objects, um, the, the types of act activities that, that we did, like there were versions of, you know, tag type activities, but there was also a lot of like just movement dance style type activities where it was organized, get the kids to move and like pretend that they were animals moving through different environments, especially if we had the spaces to do it, or we'd set up mats and they'd crawl under them and around them and so on, pretending to be different types of animals. Those are the best ones I can think of, but awesome. definitely some movement ed was influenced uh, our, our activities. 
Thank you. That gives us all a bit more of an idea in our imaginations what you're doing. Uh, Dan, I'm going. Thank you so much. Um, Dan, I'm going to switch to you now. Uh, Dan, there's lots, there's lots of yeah. uh, detailed questions for you. So I'm going to try and gather them together because everybody's uh, had sort of similar, but then got excited and expanded out from each other. So first of all, there was the question of, could you just clarify the age and the hours of a school day for our reception aged children, please? Yeah, uh, so the children are aged between four and five, so they go they enter uh, reception in the September following their fourth birthday, and then after that, the September after that they enter formal schooling, which is year one, and they're age five at that point. Um, and as I think you said in the chat, Christy, it's normally between nine a.m. and three three fifteen um, during the, that. That tends to be the school hours. So it's different to what I think Arya said. Uh, later on in the chat in which um, they have a much longer day um, awesome so we then turn to seasons where everybody got really interested and there was a couple of questions about did you map the activities that were being done in the different seasons did you have a rainfall measure and did you look at the differences at weekends and weekdays in that different seasons yeah so that, that's a a really good point that I probably should have made within the presentation that the data we have on physical activity is just the accelerometer accelerometer data. We didn't map it against any sort of contextual data. So I think um, it, to answer Mark and Menno's question about what they were actually doing at each time during those physical activities, we don't really have that data. We can sort of guess from the school day data at specific times based on the normal structure of a school day. So between 12 and 1 when they were most physically active we guess that was during the lunch breaks but in terms of their specific activities we didn't collect anything on that so what I mean yep. in an ideal world we'd have had diaries and stuff like that but, but next time yeah next time hopefully. Uh, next time and uh, um, one last question from Tristan he asked about in particular um what were the implications now for physical activity policy in England now that you know these things yeah, so I guess it's it's probably not what we expected. We expected children to be less less active than they were, um, based on our findings uh, and and other previous research. Um, but the, the sort of the variation in physical activity, we could probably and how it relates to policy. So the policy is that the UK, the government wants children to engage in thirty minutes of physical activity within schools and then thirty minutes outside of schools. Um, but how that's set out and how that's um, implemented in the schools is very different and differs between schools depending on the resources, the funding, the culture and the expertise that is on offer within schools. So in terms of policy implications, it's difficult unless we can... One of the, the projects me and Christy are working on is um, looking at the competence and confidence and the training that um, primary school teachers... Uh, get to be able to deliver PE in early years because we don't have specialist PE teachers within early years in primary schools. It's just general teachers who've done a primary education course. So I don't know if that makes sense, or if that's answered the question any, anywhere. But That's lovely. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm going to switch to Thank Zach um, next. Um, Zach, um, did you write up any of your storytelling books? Like, did you turn them into picture books or storybooks to be used in the future? 
well, at the time of this, you know, this was three years ago. Um, at th that time, I used them. I, I made them through Google Slides, so they were projected onto a, um, you know, a projector in what a, what a smart board, and uh, the students went along with it. Now, in the intervening years, after uh, you know, we got back from our little break, uh, we've started. I started using the app called Book Creator, and the students were. Um, involved in this creation of stories also they chose um you know one of the movement concepts that we've been talking about like you know body shapes or levels or what have you then uh we used a brainstorming template to brainstorm characters setting plot what have you then i would go and kind of put it together for them because we don't have that much time we only have about 70 minutes per week together in 35 minute sessions and then um, we we acted out their story, you know, it would be presented again. And then this year, I also did make uh, physical books and also we performed them on a green screen. So and we were able to kind of make um, sort of a moving story video type thing. And it was presented for parents at an innovation and creativity exhibition. So that's, wow, I didn't get a chance to talk about the next steps because we ran out of time. But uh, if I was going to talk, you know, more about what I'm now calling moving stories, uh, the merging of literature and physical education, then I would I would love to share all that stuff maybe at a future date. You know? Maybe or in maybe in New Vascular in 2024. That might be well, a yeah. uh, <laughs> awesome sidestep into that. Thank you so much, Zach. That sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. I want to see your your stories and I want to see your movies. Um, Aria, should we turn to you and the uh, next steps? Yes, so thank you for all of you about very good questions and uh, discussion and I think that this really showed how important it is that we uh, gather together and start to talk about cultural differences, what we could do as a researcher, what is our duty to support our, for example, easy, easy teachers, uh, PE knowledge. So. The next possibility we we are going to have uh, ISF Congress in Chile this July, the uh, beginning of July and 4th of July, we have a pre-Congress seminar. So in case you still have some travel money, in case you don't <laughs> haven't yet uh, uh, have, have your fights there. So now it's really time to do that. So we continue this kind of discussion and learning from each other and sharing ideas and uh, supporting each other's uh, research. And after Chile, so we are going to have next year, <clears throat> pretty much this time, uh, ISF 2024 Congress in Uvascula. So May 4, uh, 13, we are going to have a pre-Congress seminar and uh, we have dreaming and planning to have uh, possibilities to visit in early childhood education centers, just like schools to really see how possible differences are and to discuss about this cultural thing more deeper, see what is really happening, how children are um, handling these weather things and so on. And the main Congress days will be 14th to 17th. So. 
please follow <laughs> our web pages so there will be more information after Chile Congress immediately and uh, at the end of this year so there will be anyway abstract submissions so please be active and we really uh, uh, warmly welcome you to join ISF family and also our special interest group with these topics. So here you can find uh, the link to our webpage where we uh, share the information. There's also Twitter and I am so far sharing uh, this ISEP special interest group, what, uh, but we are also churching new, uh, new powerful people <laughs> to join us to take the lead for a while, because I think that we have been here with Christy quite many years, so it's good to have a refreshment a little bit. And Christy is really uh, unbelievable with uh, doing everything. So she has been making these things very easy to work on and very inspiring person to support this work. So thank you, Christy. Thank you all. And I think that are we in the last minute? No, there are still something in case. Christy, is there something that you would like to comment? Um, no, I just would like to thank all of our presenters today who came and shared from the special issue. Um, we thank you very much for your continued work within the early years to make the early years voice a little bit louder so that we can continue um, our vision and impact of trying to um, show that there is research being done in this area. And we thank the three of you for joining us today. Thanks, everybody. And for those of you um, who are still uh, listening or watching online, um, if you are interested and you cannot make Chile this year, uh, physically, there is a small portion that of that conference that is online. You get uh, the keynote speakers. We have great uh, keynotes lined up. And then there's some pre-recorded um, presentations as well. So uh, that conference runs July 4th to the 7th in Santiago. Um, so we'll link to that information or you can go to ICEP 2023, just Google that and it'll hit you to the main conference website. You can register through there or go to the um, ICEP website or our uh, Twitter. So thanks for coming everybody. And uh, as Mark Close would be very excited to see that we are finishing on time, starting on time. There you go. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, Aria. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>